please turn in your Bibles with me this afternoon to the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1. As we begin a new sermon series here through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll be looking at the first 17 verses. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, also printed for you in your uh, bulletin insert. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. What you're about to hear now is the very word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoiada and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiada was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abuid. And Abui, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eluid. And Eluid, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Methan. And Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Praise God for his holy word. This is the very word of God. And let us always be thankful for his holy word. Let us always read it with reverence and joy. Our temptation, of course, is to kind of skip over this introduction and this list of names and get to the so-called good stuff. Uh, But friends, this is good stuff. Uh, This is no less the Word of God, because in these words we see how God himself has shaped history for this moment, the coming of his Son, Jesus Christ. 
So what we have this afternoon in front of us in this text is not a laundry list of names from some scribe. What we have in this text is the very Word of God. It is turning the page from those Old Testament promises and shadows and types into the New Testament, fulfilling before our very eyes the promises of God that He's spoken long ago. So never, friends, ought we to leave off our responsibility and joy as Christians to digest each and every word of God from Scripture, asking God to give us a desire to increase in His grace, to understand His word, to desire it, to have a zealous affection for His word, more devotion for His word. And may we never read His word, especially now, without asking for and depending upon His Holy Spirit to illumine what truths He is teaching us in his passages, especially this one this afternoon. Friends, what we have in front of us here this afternoon is a genealogy, a family history of Jesus, his genesis. That's literally what the word means here in Greek of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who in his divinity has no beginning and has no end. Of course, in his humanity is born in the flesh as God, very God with us. So what are we to make of this introduction, this genealogy? Why does Matthew include it here? As we start to think about that, I want you to keep something in mind as we go through this passage. As you fly over this family history, you're going to be helped by having a picture in the back of your mind. As one person said once, this genealogy, uh, you can think about it kind of like a, a slanted N, So you have, in this genealogy, three sets of names. In these 17 verses, we have 46 names total, in addition to the title Christ, tracing Jesus' genealogy all the way from Joseph back to Abraham. Those names are summarized in three groups of 14 generations each. So think about it like this. 14 from Abraham to David... These are going upward. You can think about in this N, upward in history, the promise of God the Father to Abraham and to King David. And then the second 14 going down on that leg of the N, just plummeting in history from in danger and judgment before God. And then finally, that last 14 moving upward again in hope and fulfillment and then culminating here In Jesus Christ. Now, why does Matthew open his gospel with this genealogy? First and foremost, to show you not what Jesus did, but who he is. If you understand who Jesus is, then you will inevitably pay attention to what he said in what follows in the rest of the gospel. Because if Jesus was just like any other man, If Jesus was just an ordinary person like you and me, then he doesn't really merit our attention, does he? But if he's absolutely unique, if his pedigree, you could say, is significant, then we not only need to learn about him, we must seriously consider who he is. We must give him our full attention. And so Matthew says here, This Jesus, who I am about to tell you about in the following pages, 
is God's promised Christ. Jesus' life on earth has eternal significance for all of human history. So what Matthew's point is, and what you need to take away from this passage today, the main idea is this. Because God shapes history, Jesus fulfills God's promise for a long-awaited Savior. Because God shapes history, Jesus fulfills God's promise for the long-awaited Savior. So take him seriously. Deserves your attention. Now, as we start studying this Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to understand what we mean when we say the book of Matthew is a gospel. Because a gospel is much more than just a biography. A biography is concerned with presenting a full account of a person's life, or at least a very specific part of a person's life. It's giving you very important details um, that can't be left out. It's more of an objective summary of a person's life. But a gospel has a different purpose than just your modern biography. The gospel writers are not concerned with giving you every single detail of Jesus' life. You'll notice, for example, that Matthew is going to spend very little time on Jesus' childhood. There's almost nothing on his teenage years, his adolescent years. And most of the Gospels are going to spend their time on Jesus' only three years or so of ministry when he's in probably his 30s. And even then, most of the Gospels only focus on the last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified and he rises from the dead. If you put all of that information together, There's a total of less than 30 days of Jesus' life accounted for in the entire New Testament. Why? Well, because a gospel isn't a traditional biography. Not in the modern sense. A gospel is preached history. It's a proclamation of good news that continues to apply to you and me today. A gospel presents ultimate truths about Jesus Christ that are meant to permanently change your life. There's four Gospels, as many of you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're not all exactly the same. They don't all give the same exact account. There's differences and there's similarities. Why are there differences? Again, because each of these four writers are concerned with a different side, presenting sort of a different side or theme of the life of Jesus, so that you'll be changed in perhaps a different way. Now, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking of, if you've seen Christopher Nolan's movie, Dunkirk. Dunkirk is telling the story of the evacuation of soldiers from the coast of France. And in that movie, it's giving three perspectives. There's the perspective told from the air. There's the perspective of the story told from the sea. There's the perspective of the story told from the beach. All of them are really giving the same account, but from different angles. And not only that, from different times. One story is told in perhaps a few hours, one in over a day, one over several days, something like that. Well, you can think of the Gospels in kind of the same way. They're all telling the same story, but the same person, the same facts, but giving a different perspective or angle because they want you to take away a different theme. So the book of 
Mark, for example, is going to tell you all about Jesus as the man, um, the Christ, the servant. Right? Jesus said, I, I, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Or if you think of the Gospel of Luke, his concern is to pre- present Jesus as Christ, the Son of Man, expressly showing in his humanity how his heart for people works his hands to serve and care for them in very practical ways. Or in John's Gospel, Jesus is the Son of God, giving you a very divine view of Jesus' majesty, that he's before all time. He's the majestic one come in the flesh. But in Matthew's Gospel, as we're going to see, Lord willing, Matthew's concern is he wants to show you how Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's going to repeatedly come back to this theme that Jesus has come to establish his kingdom, to bring in his kingdom, and he rules over all things. And because he has authority over all things, then you must submit to his authority. In fact, it is, it is blessed, you are blessed to submit to his authority and to submit to his rule. And so as Matthew opens his gospel of the King of Kings, he wants you to see that because God shapes history, Jesus fulfills God's promise for the long-awaited Savior. So let's take him seriously. And the first way that Matthew is showing us this, pointing us to this, he started off his preaching history, his gospel, by proclaiming important truths about Jesus. The first thing that he wants us to see through Jesus, is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Where do you see that in this text? Well, it's at the very beginning here in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, excuse me, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you know your Old Testament scriptures, you'll know that there are two massive promises given by God to his people in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament scriptures, really all of scripture, is, is revolving around or unfolding these two great promises that God makes. He gives one promise to Abraham and one promise to David, these two great covenant promises. God speaks his covenant promise to Abraham in, in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, and he reiterates or echoes that in Genesis 18 and 22. And he says to Abraham, I will make you a a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into a nation and kings shall come from you. A wonderful covenant promise from God to Abraham. And we see that after God gives this promise. Abraham and his wife Sarah are given a son, right? Isaac. You start to see some of that promise fulfilled. But if you follow and you know the story, although many descendants, millions of people are going to come from that promise given to Abraham, we also know the rest of the story that Israel, as it grows into a nation, repeatedly fails to fully enjoy those covenant promises. The Israelites would be conquered and enslaved. And at the time that Matthew's writing this, who is ruling over the Israelites? It's the Roman Empire. 
So when the Jews especially are hearing this about God's promise to Abraham, many of them might be wondering, has God's promise to Abraham failed? We're not enjoying, it seems, the fulfillment of this promise of a great people and a great land. How has God blessed the nations? Is he going to be true to his word? Well, then that second great promise that God makes, hundreds of years after Abraham, God makes another monumental promise, this time to King David. David says he wants to build God a house, but God says to him, I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. A wonderful promise God makes to to David. And we see that David's son Solomon inherits that promise. But if you know your Old Testament history again, you know that although Solomon ruled spectacularly over Israel, he also precipitated a disastrous fall. End up really splitting the kingdom through his son. Eventually, God's people are going to be conquered, and even God's great city, Jerusalem, is going to be sacked and conquered. God's people might be wondering, is God true to his promises that he gave to David, a king forever on his throne? They don't have a king on the throne right now when, they're, when Matthew is speaking these words. And Matthew starts his gospel by proclaiming that God's promises have not failed. Matthew's word to us, God's word through Matthew, is that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. After waiting hundreds of years, Matthew proclaims Nations, peoples of the earth, here is your hope. Everything that God promised to Abraham, but that Israel failed to experience, will be fulfilled, is fulfilled through Christ. All nations are blessed. How? Not through some physical land, but through Jesus Christ himself. And Matthew starts his gospel also by proclaiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised King the son of David, the greater son, who will rule eternally with everlasting justice. Friends, what you need to see here is that God never fails to keep his promises. You can count on his every word. Jesus is the son of Abraham and son of David. He's the visible sign and assurance that God will never fail to keep his word. Nothing will stop him from doing what he says. In fact, there's only thing, one thing that, it's, that God cannot do. It's impossible for God to lie. So Hebrews 6 tells us, no matter, no matter how unlikely or improbable as it might seem when God speaks his promises, you can count on them being fulfilled, on him fulfilling his word. What he has said will happen. The drowning of the world in a flood? Impossible, improbable? Ask Noah and his family. 
who saw the fulfillment of that promise. Giving a child to a woman who's well beyond her childbearing years? Ask Abraham and Sarah, who saw the fulfillment of that promise that God gave to them. Israelites being liberated from bondage in Egypt, even Pharaoh's army being destroyed, impossible that the greatest nation on the earth could be defeated in that way? Ask the Israelites. They crossed through the Red Sea. They saw God's promise fulfilled. And not only that, being fed in the wilderness for 40 years, could God set a table in the wilderness for his people? Just ask Moses and the Israelites as they journeyed for 40 years. God never failed to provide for them just like he promised. Sending a Savior to free people from slavery to sin in his time, according to his design, from the right family tree, Matthew is here to tell you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, God never fails to fulfill his promises. Read a record of it right here. Because how is God doing on his promises? Faithful. Because if God has said he will do something, it will never fail to happen. I wonder, though, what promises has God made to you that seem unlikely or improbable in your life? What word of God do you struggle to believe today? Persevering in your salvation when your faith seems weak? When you struggle with sin? Impossible? Check again God's promise. He says, I will give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will ever snatch them from my hand. Or what about God delivering you from a besetting sin? A sin that you think is too powerful, a temptation that's too great. Impossible? God's promise says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What about showing abundant grace and mercy to you after you've sinned? Maybe a very heinous way even. Impossible for God to forgive you? God's promise to you is sure. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You might be wondering, can God forgive my past? Such a dark, black past. Impossible? Hear and remember God's faithful promise. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Can I be, can I be a loving and selfless and patient and gentle spouse or friend or sister or brother or daughter or son or sibling? Is that, is that impossible for me? Hear God's promise. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. My friends, let me give you one more promise. For those of us who are tempted by discouragement, feel like it's impossible to go on one more day, hear God's promise. 
A bruised reed I will never break. A smoking wick he will not quench. Friends, this is the God who has covered the earth and water, parted the Red Sea, provided food for his people in the wilderness. If he has spoken a promise to you, he will not fail to fulfill it. Whatever he promises will take place, and that's what he shows us here with this genealogy of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham and the promised son of David. So believe every word from our God. Matthew continues, though, his preaching history of life-changing truths about Jesus that are necessary for our lives. He proclaims a second important truth through these words that he wants us to see, and that is that human nature is corrupted by sin. Human nature is corrupted by sin. Now, for us Gentiles living in the 21st century, when we read through this list, when I was reading through this list of names, I wonder if you started to get a, you know, a little, uh, little groggy or maybe trying to follow along with all these confusing names. They might sound foreign to you. Well, friends, you need to understand, though, that for Jews, primarily Jewish audience hearing this for the first time, they weren't foreign names to many of the Jews. Uh, they would have known many of these names, familiar to them. Uh, think about it kind of like if you're a, a very big NBA uh, fan and you hear the rattling off of NBA all-star names, you would know those names. Or if you think of uh, somebody who's a movie aficionado, uh, just going back through all the decades of Oscar winners and all the names associated with those movies, they'd know a lot of those names. Well, the Jews, hearing this for the first time, they would know a lot of these prominent names that Matthew gives in this long genealogy. And they also notice that Matthew doesn't give every single descendant from Abraham to Jesus. He skips over some names. And what is he doing here when he does that? Well, as I said before, Matthew is not giving us an exact family tree. That's not his main point. His main point is to drive us and see that Jesus is fulfilling God's promises to Abraham and David, and that this is an impressive line of people that Jesus descended from a great patriarch like Abraham and a great king like David. So in a way, Jesus really checks all the boxes when it comes to the right pedigree of a king and savior. But if you check these names, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, you'll also notice, hmm, there's a lot of names in here that are not so great. There's a lot of names and people associated with them that are really black marks when it comes to this family history. Why is that? Now, friends, Matthew is drawing us to a very stark reality here in this genealogy. If you dig a little deeper, you'll see this is not a spotless record. You know, in, in many historical genealogies, especially of great people, uh, you might expect and see that the, the list of names will be scrubbed from any black marks, any black sheep of the family that would taint the reputation of that family line. Well, isn't it interesting? And Jesus, the King of Kings, the Bible doesn't scrub out all of those black names of black marks, does it? The Bible isn't concerned with hiding anything in Jesus' family history. The Bible, in fact, shows that there's a great deal of sin that permeated this family history. And friends, here's what Matthew's doing. 
He's driving us to confront the truth that no matter how pious, no matter how godly a family tree might be, God's grace does not just automatically transfer from one generation to the next. No matter how godly someone's parents might be, that doesn't necessarily mean their children are going to be just as godly. Because human nature is corrupted by sin. Was David a godly man and a great king? Yes. He had many failings as well, to be sure. And his son Solomon, however, as wise and wealthy as he was, devoted himself to many idols and many foreign women that turned his heart away from God. Was Solomon, as a father, a great king, a wise man? Yes, he was. He even built God's temple. But what about his son, Rehoboam? Rehoboam was an oppressive man, persecuting the people. Because of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the kingdom was divided in two between the northern kingdom in Israel and the southern kingdom in Judah. Just having a godly father is not enough. Or think through some of these other names, if you're familiar with them. Jehoshaphat. Although Jehoshaphat was a fairly godly king who defeated his enemies, called on God's people to worship God, his son, Jehoram, murdered all of his brothers. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And although Josiah was an incredibly godly man, he helped to reform uh, the religious worship of the people, recovering the law, being very zealous for God's word, we know that his son, Jehoaz, went right back to his wicked forefathers' ways and steeped himself in idolatry. Friends, this is not a list of sinless saints. Although there are many godly people listed in this record, Matthew reminds us here that just because someone's father or mother is very godly, that godliness is no guarantee of the next generation's piety. You cannot inherit your salvation from your parents. I hope all of our kids hear that very clearly. Parents, future parents, our children do not inherit grace from us. Natural birth is no guarantee of spiritual life. We are all born sinners. We're all born children of wrath. Therefore, the Bible teaches us that you must undergo such a radical spiritual transformation that it is like being born again. If you're going to be grafted into God's family, into his family line, it can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit and the washing of regeneration so that you have a new heart. That is what grafts you into Christ's family tree. And so, friends, we ought to read this genealogy and be reminded it wasn't just these people who needed salvation. I need salvation too. You need salvation too because I'm no better. You're no better than these people on this list. You know, I might not have murdered my brothers. Might not have been a prostitute. I know in my heart I've murdered people in my anger. I know in my heart I've, I've lusted after people. My friends, I, I grew up in a church. I grew up in a very good church. I grew up with godly parents. But that's not what makes me a Christian. Godliness 
is not guaranteed by your background. This is why Jesus came into the world. Not because of an impeccable family line, but to save people of a sinful humanity from which we all descend. So parents, future parents, it's ought to be a reminder to us that we have a duty to pray for our children. That every single day we ought to bring our children to God in prayer. We need his grace and mercy. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to change our children's hearts so that they would confess their sin and that they would know Jesus as their Savior. Parents, it's not our job to save our children. That's God's job. But it is our job to pray for our children, to repeatedly point them to Christ, and to teach them. Not only do we need to pray for them every day, but we also need to instruct them in God's Word. Our work and effort in doing that is no indicator, no promise that God is going to save our children. But it is true, according to research, one LifeWay study, that it's more likely for children who become Christians, more likely that they grew up in homes where the Bible was regularly read and studied. So parents, let's make it a regular practice in our lives that we're praying for our children. In our homes, we are instructing them in the ways of God. My friends, to be a Christian, you don't need to come from the right family tree. To be a Christian starts with recognizing that you're a sinner and that sin is a part of our fallen human nature. Sin is what all of us inherit as human beings. And to join the Christian family tree, you need to be born again through repentance of sin and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And that brings us quite naturally to our final point. There's a third important truth that we must take away from the start of Matthew's gospel is that Although human nature is corrupted by sin, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. There's many names in this genealogy that should surprise us when we see them. They should surprise us for various reasons. There are people here who are very disreputable. There are kings listed here who did very very many wicked things. There are kings here who fathered very wicked people. There's also people here with very dark pasts. And some who are included here to remind us of past evil events. Some especially are included to illumine and display God's mercy and his compassion to the most unlikely of people. And friends, in this list, some of the most unlikely people to be included are names of five women. The fact that women are mentioned at all in this genealogy is actually remarkable. It's unusual because genealogies of that day would typically only include men. To include women would perhaps cast doubt on the reliability of the genealogical record. But not here. Not in this biblical genealogy. Five women included. And it's not just unusual that women are included, in fact. It's the very fact that four of these women listed here are not even Israelites. They're not Jews. Ruth was a Moabite. Tamar was a Canaanite. Uh, Rahab came from Jericho. Even uh, Bathsheba, who's not even named, 
called the wife of Uriah. Even Bathsheba, by marriage, was considered a Hittite because Uriah was a Hittite. So to include four Gentile women in a Jewish genealogy is quite remarkable. But it's not just their ethnicity or background like that that sullies the record, so to speak, questions it. But don't forget their dirty pasts. Tamar and Rahab were both prostitutes. Bathsheba, who isn't named, like I said, she's referred to the, as the wife of Uriah. You know, just referring to Bathsheba in that way, I think, is Matthew's cue for us to remember what went on between David and Bathsheba and that, all the wickedness that occurred during that event. It's to remind us of all the depravity, you could say, that took place, but also Ruth, even Ruth. Ruth was innocent of any sexual sin, but remember that Ruth was a Moabite, and Moabites are the descendants of whom? Of Lot and the incest he had with his daughters. So for the Jews, when they saw a Moabite, uh, they were to be kept at a distance, at least 10 generations were not to be included, typically, in the Jewish line from a Moabite. So why would Matthew include Gentiles, morally questionable people, even women in the family record of Jesus? It's because Matthew is making the simple point. He's hinting to us, you could say, at the very beginning of his gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for just one ethnicity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not for just one sex. It's not for one socioeconomic background. It's not for only educated people. It's not for only a special class of people with a special class of knowledge. Matthew is proclaiming the gospel is for all people. For all who, go, who come to Jesus in faith. Jesus, the Son of God who became a man to save his people from their sins. This is the type of king that Jesus is. See, the Jews are expecting a king, a Christ, a Messiah, who's going to come, kick out the Roman Empire, It's going to establish a physical kingdom in the land, He's going to give them physical prosperity, he's going to crush all these Roman occupiers under his foot. That's the type of king that the Jews are expecting. But Matthew... The very start of his gospel is saying, you see the type of people that God includes in his family? He shows mercy and compassion on people of deep and dark sin. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to rescue people from their sin through his finished work. This is the type of king that he is. He is the type of king who crushes sin and Satan under his foot, who redeems and saves people from sin and the bondage to sin. This is the type of king that we should long for and look for, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that king. Matthew's saying Jesus' true purpose in coming, not to establish a physical kingdom, but to bring in his spiritual kingdom of people who repent of their sin and trust in him alone for salvation. This is who Jesus is. This is who we're going to see on full display in Matthew's gospel in the following pages. So Matthew's point The start of this gospel is that the good news is for all people. Friends, if if women, like Matthew describes here, 
very unexpected, if they can be included in God's family, why can't you? If disrespected people with dirty pasts can be included in God's kingdom, why not you? If Christ can break down barriers between peoples and reconcile them to God through Jesus, then what's stopping you from being reconciled to God? What's stopping you from reconciliation between you and your maker? Your name, your past, may or may not be just as black and dark as some of the people listed here in this genealogy. But if Jesus Christ is not ashamed to be born of a family line like this, why would he shy away from giving you a new birth to a life with him? And the Bible is telling you there's no one who's too far gone. There's no one who is too sinful whom Christ cannot save. There's no one whose past is so dark, so sordid, that Christ's mercy cannot cover over it. Because Jesus Christ came to bless all nations, all peoples, in this way, to offer salvation to all, regardless of background, nation, male or female. And this is to fulfill God's promise to Abraham, salvation offered for all peoples. So friends, as we think about these truths, let me ask you, are you trusting in Christ for the salvation of your sins? You don't need to have a spotless record to be a Christian. It's Christ's spotless life of obedience and his payment for the price of sin that earns you and me salvation. That's what restores your salvation, your relationship with God. To be a Christian is not to merit salvation on your own or to receive it from your parents or descendants. But it is to receive salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. To be a Christian means, on the one hand, to confess your sins to God, but on the other hand, to receive and rest in the finished work of Christ that accomplishes forgiveness that is found through faith in Him alone. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, then the Bible has every assurance that you are a Christian. And that God's promise to you is that no one will snatch you from Jesus' hands. Friends, here in the opening of his gospel, Matthew presents you ultimate truths about Jesus Christ that are meant to permanently change you. Because Matthew shows us in this gospel not just what Jesus does, what he did, but who he is. And if you understand who Jesus is, you will inevitably pay attention to what he does and what he says in the pages that follow. Because Jesus is not like any other, because he's absolutely unique, you must give him your full attention. God shapes history. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises for the long-awaited Savior. Take him seriously. Amen. Let's ask God to bless his word. Please pray with me.